from the Nipty Radio Recording Studios, high above 107 Columbia Street in the heart of Uptown Downtown Albany, welcome to this week's edition of the Nipty Practice Tips. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Nipty Practice Tips. Today's edition is the hidden essentials of speedy trial calculations. Keeping track of chargeable time is one of the key requirements in assuring a case is not unexpectedly dismissed or defendant is released for a speedy trial violation. In addition to the rules governing chargeable time at a calendar call, there are other non-calendar call issues that may be overlooked in maintaining a proper calculation of includable time. To begin with, the speedy trial clock starts to run with the filing of the original accusatory instrument and not the arrest. In most cases, this will be the filing of the criminal court complaint when the defendant is first arrested. If the case is presented directly to the grand jury before the arrest takes place, the clock begins to run with the filing of the indictment. In calculating specific chargeable speedy trial time, date of the filing of the accusatory instrument is not charged to the people. The speedy trial clock and the potential chargeable time will begin on the day after the filing of the original accusatory instrument. If the defendant is given a desk appearance ticket, the clock begins to run on the date the defendant first appears in the local criminal court in compliance with that DAT. Now, if you have an indictment upon a defendant which has already been presented to the court, the defendant's been arraigned and so forth. And then you choose to add additional charges to the indictment by resubmitting the case to a new grand jury. The calculation of chargeable time still commences on the date of the filing of the first accusatory instrument. In other words, these new charges are treated as if they were part of the original accusatory instrument for purposes of speedy trial chargeable time calculations. All the chargeable time, as well as all the excludable time for the already indicted charges also apply to the added charges as if they were in the accusatory instrument from day one. But basically, there is only one date for determining the commencement of a criminal action and upon which calculations must be made as to includable and excludable time. And this resubmission does not negate your statements of readiness on the first indictment. The permissible speedy trial time for an A misdemeanor is a specific 90 days. The speedy trial time for a felony case is a non-specific six months. Now, how many days are in a particular six-month period is determined by counting from the date of the filing of the original accusatory instrument. You count forward six calendar months. You then count the number of days contained in those six calendar months. Now, I can give you a hint. It will be either 181, 182, 183, or 184, depending upon the month in which the calculation begins. 
if February is part of your six month calculation, it's either going to be 181 or 182. And if it's not, the numbers are going to be either 183 or 184. If the last day of your time period falls on a Saturday, Sunday, or holiday, the time frame is extended to the next business day. If a misdemeanor case is dismissed for speedy trial violation, the Court of Appeals has held that the people may still indict the case to secure a six-month period for trial instead of the 90 days for an A misdemeanor. If a defendant is originally charged with a misdemeanor and the case is subsequently indicted as a felony, the people have the six-month period of speedy trial time. On the other hand, if the defendant is originally charged with a felony and the charges are subsequently reduced to misdemeanors, the following rules apply in determining how much speedy trial time you have in which to be ready to try the case. From the date of the reduction, you have either 90 days or the remainder of the original six months the case had as a felony, whichever is less. And you determine this, which, which one is less, by deducting the amount of time that is chargeable to the people before the reduction to a misdemeanor from the six-month period allowed for the felony. So if there was more than three months chargeable, the number will be less than 90, and that is the amount of time you have remaining in your speedy trial calculations on the reduced charge that is now a misdemeanor. In calculating chargeable time, the present calendar date is considered part of the adjourned period established on the previous adjourned date. Even if the people announce their readiness today, it is the previous adjourned date that controls to whom today's calendar day is charged. For example, the people announced their readiness on May 1st. The fence requests an adjournment to May 15th. This two-week period is excludable. Now, included in this two weeks of excludable time is May 15th, the next calendar day. On that next adjourned day, regardless of what happens, that calendar day is excludable because the people had announced their readiness on the previous calendar date. Under the new laws of discovery and speedy trial, the people are no longer permitted to announce their readiness before supplying the discovery identified in CPL 245-20 subdivision one. The issue now of how much discovery can be left outstanding while the people may still file a valid certificate of compliance and statement of readiness has yet to be definitively determined by the appellate courts. And it's going to be a while until we have significant decisions that are fairly consistent throughout all the appellate divisions and ultimately from the Court of Appeals. These new rules do not have any impact on the application 3030 subdivision four subdivisions, which make adjournment time excludable without the people needing to be ready for trial. The application of these exceptions does not require the people to have filed a certificate of compliance nor previously announced their readiness. For example, a defendant requests or consents to an adjournment that makes the adjournment time excludable pursuant to 3030 subdivision 4B. 
it is irrelevant whether the people have previously announced their readiness. Additionally, the people are not required to have an accusatory instrument that is sufficient to bring the defendant to trial or these subdivisions to apply. There is nothing in the new law that has added any additional requirements to the application of these subdivision four exceptions. For this reason, time may be excluded under the new discovery statutes and amended speedy trial statutes without the people having filed a certificate of compliance or a statement of readiness. When the people are in a pre-readiness posture, they are charged with the time they request for an adjournment, as well as any additional time the court decides to adjourn the case for its convenience beyond the people's request. If the defense is not ready and they request an adjournment, it has been held that any additional time added by the court to the defense request is also charged to the people, who in theory could file a statement of readiness and a certificate of compliance to stop that clock at any time during the adjournment. The mere silence by the defense at the time of an adjournment is not considered to be consent to that adjourned date. Consistently in speedy trial law, it is the people's burden to assure the record clearly reflects facts that will permit a determination to whom the time should be charged. A calendar judge's comments on the record at an adjournment as to whom time should be charged is not binding on any court, including that judge, who is deciding a speedy trial motion filed by the defense. A dismissal of an indictment for insufficient evidence before the grand jury does not negate any statements of readiness on that indictment that took place before its dismissal. Now, the basis for this rule is that a trial may be conducted on an indictment based on insufficient evidence before the grand jury. If there is a conviction, obviously based on sufficient evidence, no appeal is permitted to challenge the original sufficiency of the evidence in the grand jury. A key issue that awaits appellate court review is how much material are the people required to supply to the defense under CPL 245-21K before they may file their COC and SOR. The cases from the various local courts cover the gambit from a finding that summaries listing all pending and substantiated complaints against testifying police officer witnesses is sufficient. While on the other hand, there are cases that require the people to supply all the background material for both substantiated and unsubstantiated complaints. The courts in these decisions reject the people's claim that the material is equally available to the defense to acquire and hold the people responsible for delivering them to the defense. Some courts have held that this one case subdivision material need not be supplied initially for a certificate of compliance to be sufficient and thus make a valid statement of readiness without all it having been given to the defense. Other cases require the material to be supplied before any certificate of compliance is considered valid. Now, there are a great number of these cases to review, and you can find them in the prosecutor's encyclopedia in the CPL 245 Discovery Digest. Now, I have been giving you a lot of information with absolutely no authority. We have a, a written version 
of this presentation, which does have the citations for the authority for the issues that we've been discussing, as well as various places in the prosecutor's encyclopedia where you can read the various cases as well as others that we do not mention here today. Now, as we await the appellate division's decisions on this particular 1K issue, it is important to preserve your appellate position with clear records of what actions you have taken to secure the material and your basis for the position you are taking as to how much material you are required to supply. And realistically, this suggestion covers everything you deal with under the new laws, not just 1K. You need to make the record. And in making a record, you're going to establish that you have been acting with the required due diligent, good faith effort to secure material you believe is required and you argue that in good faith, what material is not required to be delivered. In doing so, any sanction that may be directed at the people, if the appellate courts rule on the issue and say, no, you should have delivered this and so forth. The remedy for that is found in 245.80 and not the negating of a certificate of compliance and a statement of readiness. These 245.80 sanctions require that the defense demonstrates some prejudice for the non or late delivery of discovery material. Because this is primarily impeachment material, a late delivery by the people should not result in any real prejudice to the defense. Most importantly, it will not create the potential for a speedy trial dismissal or the charging of significant periods of time to the people. Now, as I said, folks, we have just uh, volumes of material in the prosecutor's encyclopedia dealing with our new discovery and updated speedy trial statutes. So please look at the material and use the resources that are available. They're very useful. I want to thank our crack producer and man about town, Jonathan Marconi Crispino, who's always at the helm to make sure things go smoothly. To all of you out there, be well and stay ready, my friends. Soon the gypsy queen in a glade.